invite you to be turning to Acts chapter 20. We don't know why, we'll just be there for a few seconds, but somewhere to turn. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I, I took some rabbit trails uh, in the itinerary of Paul's. We did six verses. And I said I felt I had some worthy rabbit trails to follow in those, and I did. Last week, our brother Dean preached from one verse in Luke. So I guess not to be outdone, I'm taking a huge rabbit trail today and only preaching from half a verse. <laughs> um, but like Dean last week, I'm also pulling from other scriptures. I wanted to camp here this week because we have a milestone moment in the book of Acts if not a milestone in the Bible period, that I just didn't want to brush over because it raises questions from Christians time to time. Maybe you've had this question. Maybe you've heard arguments. Maybe you don't like arguments. Maybe you just prefer to go with tradition. Um, but you've maybe thought about this briefly and moved on, not too concerned. Whatever the case... I wanted to explore with you this Sunday why many, not all, but many Christians come together on Sunday as opposed to the Sabbath of the Old Testament, as well as the Sabbath that Jesus attended in the Gospel accounts. What, Saturday. So, so why do we meet on Sunday? While we won't be talking too much about the direct happenings in the book of Acts, nevertheless, I thought I would just show you how we got here um, and the reason why I decided to launch out on exploring this topic. Um, as I said, Paul and company were moving about in Paul's third um, missionary journey. Uh, what we read last time, his movements from Ephesus after there was a riot. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> to Achaia in Greece and he wintered in the town of Corinth, where in Corinth he also wrote first, uh, excuse me, I should say during this time he wrote first and second Corinthians as well as the book of Romans. And after this winter, he's now rounding back around that Greece and Achaia and he's headed to a town called Troas. It's in current day Turkey. It's also in your Bibles, usually if they say um, the province of Asia. They're usually referring to Turkey. Um, so this is where he's at in a town called Troas. Now, if you're able to bear these long, this long half of the verse, I invite you to stand. <laughs> uh, chapter 20, verse 7. And let's read kind of the launching point of my passage, our study here today. On the first day... Of the week, we came together to break bread. Okay, you were able to bear it. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, um, this is a topic that requires much more than one sermon. Knowing me, I've probably crammed too much into it already, but I just pray that you would have your way, that you would bring to life the scriptures we read. Help us to see the importance of you fulfilling our Sabbath. Help us to see 2,000 years of tradition and why we are coming together on a Sunday still. Um, 
Help us to see the importance of your Sabbath in the Old Testament, what it, mean, what it means. Father, more than anything, I want you to be the one speaking and not I. That all of us would have open ears and hearts. That we would realize what you say is truth. And help us to obey that truth. Thank you that you love us, that you care for us. Thank you that uh, you died and rose again and are ruling and reigning. And we ask and pray these things in our Lord and Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been having our son, Calvin, memorize one of my most favorite passages in Scripture, because I can do that because I'm his dad. Um, And it's found in John chapter 5. Verses 39 and 40, it's out of the mouth of Jesus. He's talking to some Pharisees, to some Jews who knew the Scriptures probably better than I do, could likely recite large chunks of Scripture more than I could, and furthermore may have probably been more convicted of their truths and living them out more than I am. And Jesus says to them, You pour over the scriptures because you presume that by them you possess eternal life. These are the very words that testify about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me to have life. Indeed, this is one of my, the Bible is about Jesus, (laughs) proof texts. The whole reason of scripture is to point people to Jesus and to find life. But the Pharisees, and and we Christians today who love to get into debates, and what I'm about to do here has a fine line between debating or am I just trying to faithfully explain and expound the Scriptures. And I hope and pray that my passion in preaching today would come from the desire to see the truth change lives and not just a desire to be right. But the Pharisees and many of we Christians today pour over, diligently examine, search, and labor through scriptures and pride rises up and we say, see, this is something we should be doing or something all Christians should be doing and they don't. And they're under condemnation and I've discovered the truth and so forth. And I really feel like Jesus is saying, that's not the point. This isn't a weapon to take pride in and wield against others to tear them down. This is a guide, a giant arrow to point people to me, to find life in me. What I tell Calvin as we remember this passage among many is, you know, we can know all the Bible verses we want to know, buddy, but they're in our Bibles to point us to Jesus. And if we have all the entire Bible figured out, but we don't have Jesus... It's not going to do us any good. Can I get an amen out of the gate there? Okay. (laughs) So we can agree on Jesus. We can affirm it's all about Jesus. And if you or I disagree on a thousand things, one towering, unalterable agreement must be on Jesus Christ, His preeminence, His authority, His life, His work, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. That's our cornerstone agreement. 
As we handle our topic today, I hope you'll find it fairly logical in progression. We'll begin by looking at verse 7, subsection A, (laughs) again. On the first day of the week, Luke is, is using a plural pronoun here. He, Paul, and company, as well as the local Christians at Troas, came together to break bread. Break bread is a common phrase in the New Testament to refer to that communion meal or a fellowship together as Christians. And I hate to say it, but apparently Paul wasn't super Saturday Sabbatarian about the way they did church. Now, the Greek here literally says, in the one of the Sabbaths. And you're like, why didn't they put that? Because I have to explain to you what it means. That's why they didn't put that. Where in the term Sabbaths, plural, referred to the week between two Sabbaths, ending on Sabbath, as the seventh day, as Moses noted, was the day of rest. So in the one, the first one, between two Sabbaths, beginning of the week, the same expression, I should say, in Luke 24, verse 1, where Luke is commenting on the day it was when Jesus resurrected. The This meeting together on Sunday actually seemed a little normative, though for the Christians, at least at this point in time in Acts. Not just a peculiar gathering, Troas, but I told you that, again, Paul was writing Corinth likely a year or so within this time. So in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, he gives them directives on basically taking offering, and he says, basically, essentially, this is my paraphrase, When you meet together on the first day of every week, put some money aside for the ministry. The first day of every week. The evangelist John, he's likely a member of the Ephesus church. Whenever he's on the penal colony of Patmos, uh, and he's writing, or he sees the vision of Revelation, and it begins to come to him, it says, as he's meditating to God, quote, on the Lord's day. Revelation 1.10, not the Sabbath, which probably would have made more sense if he was referring to the Sabbath. The Lord's Day, likely the day the Lord Jesus resurrected. There's good reasons many Christians have for meeting together on the Lord's Day. Now, I want to be very careful here because I don't want to come across as anything but corrective and transparent, not condescending. There are many Christians, we know them, who get dogmatic on something that Paul apparently wasn't dogmatic about. (laughs) And the correct thing to do is to not say, oh, the Bible says here it's the first day of the week, and then we take all these these prideful, snobbish feelings about what's the correct day to get together to do church and then just substitute Sunday in for Saturday legalism. That's not the correct thing to do. You know what? I had church on Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and Sunday morning a few weekends ago when I went to man camp. I also had church on Monday night, Tuesday morning and night, Wednesday morning and night, a bit over a week ago at pastor's conference. So I guess I have all my bases covered. And then some. Paul, as I said, he also likely wrote Romans during this time we're studying in Acts. And you know what he told them? He says, one person regards a certain day above the others, while someone else considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's both it's both nice and frustrating 
to me that Paul doesn't say this one's right and that one's wrong. <laughs> like I fall actually in the latter category of Paul's statement here, big surprise. Every day is alike to me. Did you know that each service I went to, I felt the Lord's presence, no matter what day it was. If we moved our, if we moved our church services to Tuesday evenings here, while it would be weird and people would ask questions, I really wouldn't care. I'd happily have a sermon prepared every Tuesday. I'd take Sunday off. Now, I get meeting on Sundays because Jesus resurrected from the grave on a Sunday morning. He conquered sin and gave life to all mankind. That sounds like a great reason to have a tradition for His people to meet on Sunday mornings. Let's keep it going. I'm just saying, I feel no religious conviction. I feel no binding law to stick to it. I do it out of tradition. Now, others... I guess maybe more holy than I am. It has to be on Sunday because that's what the New Testament disciples did. Or it has to be Saturday because that's what the Jews did. Great. Paul says, be convinced of it in your own mind. And in the context of Romans 14, I just quoted verse 5. Paul says in verse 1 that this isn't something to argue over. It's not something to judge one another over. It's just an opinion. So the question is then raised... Well, what about the Ten Commandments, Kevin? You forgot about that one. I did. I need to go home and rewrite my sermon. No, just kidding. Um, the Fourth Commandment in particular. Now, you could turn to Exodus 20 or you could turn to Deuteronomy 5. That's Moses' repetition of it. In those two listings of the Fourth Commandment, we do not have a go-to-a-church-service directive. In those commands. They're both about actually remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy. They, they don't specify more than that, only than remembering that it comes from the fact that God worked six days in creation and rested the last. That the Israelites were to remember that God brought them out of Egypt as well. That was mentioned in the Deuteronomy passage. But where's the verse telling believers to worship on the Sabbath? Well, if you want one that you can kind of twist... Leviticus 23, verse 3 says, For six days work may be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of complete rest, a day of sacred assembly. You must not do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Which is why I work on Sundays. So, (laughs) a day of sacred assembly. Now, I should make mention that this is the only passage that I found, that I know of, that suggests what seems to be an easy interpretation of a church service, a sacred assembly. Now, I'm assuming that the sacred assembly, though, could be anything from a family gathering for the sole purpose to meditate, reflect, sing songs, and think about the Lord, or to what we know as synagogue gatherings. Now, I should mention this, though, that synagogues likely weren't around until much later in Old Testament times. Jewish tradition, and I emphasize that tradition, not the Bible per se, but Jewish tradition says they were around since the time of Moses. Now, I have not read into the reasons as to why Jewish tradition claims this, but I would imagine that a lot of revisionist history after the temple fell in 70 AD may be at play here. So, bear with me, think through these things. The Jews are upset and beside themselves that the temple the central figure of their very religion fell to the ground. 
And I think that you and I underestimate how core, crux, and crucial the temple was to the Jewish religion. It did not enter even to the realm of debate prior to 70 AD for any Jew that the temple could ever fall. God would never allow that again. We paid for all that in the Old Testament. This is why we find high Jewish officials taking debate with Jesus when he could pro- would prophesy about its destruction. And when it did fall and when no temple could be rebuilt in Jerusalem, it would make sense if some revisionist history outside of the sacred scriptures of the Old Testament would produce, oh, yes, the synagogue, you know, our religion meets there because it's always been around. It's been around since Moses. I also want to go further here as a warning. I think you and I underestimate how much Jewish interpretation has changed and is a reaction against Christianity after Jesus and after 70 AD. I know lots of Christians who go into Jewish studies, and if these studies are authored by non-Christian current-day Jews, or any Jew after the time up of Jesus until now, or I should say authored by Christians who study such sources, and if students walk away from their studies a little bit more critical of the New Testament and a bit more critical of Christian customs, I wholeheartedly believe that's by design. I love Jewish people just as I much as I love people of all religions, and I'm not bashing on Jews, I'm just calling it as it is. Jewish Judaism today is a reaction to their rejecting their Messiah and their temple falling. And I'm just doing my duty to raise a red flag. You're welcome to throw that out. Jewish interpretation has had 2,000 years since the time of Jesus to react to their rejected Messiah and their fallen temple, which is the central crux of their religion. Contrary to this proposal that synagogues may have been around since the time of Moses, we actually find a few things generally in the Old Testament. First of all, we usually find central worship at the tabernacle or in a city called Shiloh as the first part of 1 Samuel, or Mizpah whenever Samuel and the prophets, and finally the temple after Solomon built it, strongly encouraged central worship at one location. And we actually find local areas and houses of worship are strongly discouraged. Why? Because local gatherings, absent of the priesthood in Jerusalem, often led to a lunatic like Kevin standing up and giving his own ideas. The term synagogue actually does not appear until the New Testament. Now, some have said, but you're wrong, Kevin. And I know you all know the verse. Okay, maybe not. Psalm 74, verse 8. This is a psalm that many believe is later in New Testament history. No, Old Testament history. Probably after both Israel and Judah. So in other words, the southern and northern kingdoms were taken and conquered. Psalm 74, verse 8 says, they said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burn down every place where God met us in the land, in a more literal syntax might say, all the meeting places of God in the land. Some have said, well, there it is, they're synagogues. We don't know. It's wonderful to read into that. It could refer to the many altars that the Old Testament patriarchs put up, as well as places of worship that I just mentioned. Mizpah, Shiloh, the tabernacle, Jerusalem. It's likely later that in Old Testament times, heading into what we call the intertestament times, that is between the writings of the Old and New Testament, that synagogues came into being. 
And this was largely brought together to keep Jewish culture alive, especially for those Jews living far away from Jerusalem who couldn't make it to the temple uh, because of uh, people being conquered, exiled, displaced. We should also know that even when Nehemiah built the wall at Jerusalem, or when a prophet named Haggai talked about people coming together to build the house of the Lord, or even in the Maccabean revolt, the history of a, the Maccabees is in common Catholic Bibles. It's interesting that none of these books or prophets make mention of a need to rebuild synagogues or how all the synagogues were burnt down when the temple went down too. Possibly because there were no synagogues. But as I said, synagogues, people, uh, many believe, largely came into place in the immediate centuries leading up to Christ for a largely conquered people. Elders were placed into synagogues uh, since Jews, by the law, were already supposed to be resting on Saturday anyways. Perhaps having Sabbath services at the synagogue made sense. Their people would not be working already, so let's fill it up with the time to come together, read the Torah, have it explained so the culture and religion can be cultivated while they're not all in Jerusalem or not near uh, the temple or near the high and mighty teachers there. Uh, we should also note that synagogues had to be located close enough for faithful Jews to attend without breaking the Sabbath. By exceeding the distance, uh, people were allowed to walk on the Sabbath day. I also believe, um, so I mean, if you haven't gathered, I believe the evidence is that they came into much later than the time of Moses. Once this system solidified more, I'm sure that some of the Jewish traditional texts started organizing making commands, officializing it more. I made that word up, officializing up. And uh, perhaps even then, maybe the verse from Leviticus about the Sabbath being a day of sacred assembly perhaps found a fuller meeting about coming to the synagogue for worship. Well, we find by the time of Jesus, he's going to the synagogue on the Sabbath because that's what every Jew did by the time of Jesus on the scene. Jesus came on the scene. Luke, our author of Acts, makes this general note about Jesus on one of his Sabbath-attending occasions, Luke 4, 16. Then Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And if you've read your gospel accounts for any amount of time, you know that Jesus frequently taught at the Sabbath gatherings, the synagogue, as he did so in the context of the passage here. And in, in response to his teaching, people first marvel and realize just the authority he has. We find that Jesus starts running into hostility at synagogues, as he does here in Luke 4. This is the passage where Jesus opens up to Isaiah 61, and he talks about the new covenant promises that God brings. Jesus owns it, and there's this climactic moment here at the end of his time in the synagogue. Luke writes, Then he rolled up the scroll, returned it to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now I know, this is what kind of Dean was was touching on last week, 2022 COVID, race riots, wonderful election season, war in Eastern Europe. Everybody wants to hear the book of Revelation read aloud in the same words. Today this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. And this is what Jesus said to those at his own hometown synagogue. The church that he attended 
growing up. I am the fulfillment of these words. Sounds a little bit like little brother Joseph talking to his brothers about the dreams of being a leader. And like Joseph was treated, Jesus is ran out of the synagogue by people he grew up with, backed up to a cliff of a hill with hopes of his falling off, but somehow Jesus manages to escape, which is itself a mystery. Whenever you're the central target of such a situation, how do you manage to escape without opposition? That's a whole other sermon to talk about, but some say he vanished. In any case, this isn't the only Sabbath at a synagogue where Jesus finds opposition. There is this this climactic moment between Jesus and Sabbaths at the synagogue when Jesus declares that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. If you're in your Bibles, turn over to Luke 6, page 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, actually, in your pew Bibles. Luke chapter um, 6, beginning with verse 1, we read, One Sabbath, Jesus was passing through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick the heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat them. But some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? I don't know why he sounds like that. (laughs) Jesus replied, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, took the consecrated bread, and gave it to his companions, and ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. Then Jesus declared, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, a lot of things can be emphasized from this passage, but there are three that I want to relate to are this. First, Jesus finds his reasoning for his allowances on what amounts to Jewish tradition law-breaking. And again, I want to state the very attend the synagogue on the Sabbath system is, is Jewish tradition and not clear prescriptions in the Scriptures. But Jesus finds his reasoning of his allowances for his disciples doing, quote, what is unlawful on the Sabbath, right in the Old Testament. Now, we do this all the time. Oh, oh, you have a verse for what you say? Well, so do I, to prove a very contrary point of yours. (laughs) Jesus quoted scripture for his stance. The second and third emphases I want to, I want to make come right from this one statement. The Son of uh, Man is Lord on the Sabbath. And just for logical reasons, I'm going to dissect this backwards. But I should state that whenever Moses even wrote of creation, the idea of Sabbath was there. It seems to be a very old law before Moses' law. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished his work he had been doing, so that on that day he rested from all his work. Now Bill read from Hebrews, which cited this passage. And then verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on that day he rested from all the work of creation that he had accomplished. So this is, again, before the law. It's bare bones. Seventh day is holy. All of creation. This is God speaking. I approve this message, right? So this makes my third and final emphasis all the more weighty. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you hear the proclamation of that authority? The Son of Man. It's a favorite title of Jesus for himself. It's taken from a, a prophetic figure in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. And He was given dominion, glory, and kingship that the people of every nation and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That to me sounds like someone who is in charge. It sounds like God. And when Jesus says that He, the Son of Man, He is the Lord, that's authority over the Sabbath, which is likely, again, the first law in the Bible, Jesus is no doubt deifying Himself and revealing that He has the authoritative lordship and interpretation over the Sabbath. And so I want to leave Luke Uh, our author for a second, and compare what Luke writes with what Mark says in this exact same occasion in Mark 2. That page is 1190 in your pew Bibles, if you do want to turn there. Luke was likely, much after the fact, collecting statements, perhaps even looking at Matthew and Mark to write his book, whereas Mark is believed to be a companion of Peter and is writing directly from Peter's memory of events. So Peter remembers, or at least Mark writes before Jesus says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. We read in Mark 2.27, Then Jesus declared the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is just another mind bomb for the mind of the Jews of Jesus' day. Think about this. A law that had its first hint in creation seemed to be codified in Exodus and Leviticus, repeated in Deuteronomy, practiced for generations, and Jesus basically says, yeah, this is for man. (laughs) Now, if we really begin to think about it, we might understand it even better. Christy and I practice quiet time for our boys. Uh, We make our boys do this on most days. Landon, sadly, seems to be coming out of his napping habit already. And when Calvin did that, we started implementing what we call quiet time. First, it was just about an hour. It's about up to an hour and a half now (laughs) for Calvin and for Landon at the same time. If he can bear it, sometimes he says, I want out of my room. We just put the kids in their rooms and say, here's books to look at, toys to play with. Don't come down until we come get you. The Sabbath was made for dad and mom (laughs) more than uh, Calvin and Landon. But since we started that, Christy's done some reading to discover it's actually healthy for kids to have some alone time become their own person, not demand attention and be entertained all the time, develop habits to entertain themselves. Uh, This sort of quiet time is not altogether bad or an unheard of thing. I've also heard more than enough Sabbath sermons to know that there are statistics to show that workaholism ruins lives. You do need a day of rest. You do need seasons of rest to actually be more optimal. It makes no sense, but God uh, works like that a lot. (laughs) It doesn't make sense, but do it anyways. You know what I think Jesus' point here in a very general sense? This is just Kevin's lame interpretation. Stop being so serious about the Sabbath. As as hard as it is, is to hear, and sometimes we super devout followers, we get so full of ourselves and we forget who we're dealing with. We're not dealing with some remote, angry, waiting to smash us, taskmaster, slave-holding God. Jesus says God's a better father than the best of you sinful fathers. That's his point in Luke eleven thirteen. He says, so if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, Calvin can find a billion reasons why he needs to come downstairs during quiet time. 
It's the only time of day where it seems like he has to use the bathroom back to back to back to back. (laughs) Or a toy needs fixed, or he just needs to show us a picture from a book he's reading. Sure, Christy and I do get annoyed if it happens 40 times, but never do we respond the way these stuck-up Pharisees did to Jesus. Oh my goodness, how dare you hill on the Sabbath, Jesus? That's work. Why are you feeding your hungry disciples? Do you have no shame? How God must be beside himself right now with you and your Sabbath-breaking schemes, Jesus. Like, if if Jesus was a sinner like me, I feel like he would say, grow up. <laughs> like, let's see, I lost my... There we go. Who do we think God is? Some, some, sometimes I think we get this feeling that he's this twisted, emotionless, heartless, cold, indifferent father who just can't understand common sense. Who doesn't want people to be healed or fed because he's so consumed with how great his Sabbath is? Man was not made for the Sabbath. We're all not subjected to this time of rest so much that if it disrupts us or does us harm or is a labor and a drudgery to keep. That's not what God wants. The Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath is something that man partakes of. And actually, this is what we see in Genesis, that as God created the world, it says he rested. Why? His work was done. God did not look at the calendar and say, oh, Sabbath is drat. I got to cut a few corners. Sabbath is tomorrow. Uh, This is inconvenient. No, the first Sabbath was not an imposition. Sabbath isn't supposed to be an imposition. Well, what happens? How do we move from Jesus, who was a faithful Sabbath-attending Jew, he made a few declarations about the Sabbath, being the same God who set it up in the first place. How do we move from Jesus and apparently his disciples attending synagogue on Sabbath to the Christians, where certainly by Acts 20, seem to be meeting on Sunday mornings? I do want to point out, too, that just a few verses back in Acts 19, verse 9, We read that though Paul had been meeting apparently in the synagogue in Ephesus, probably on the Sabbath, when he got booted out, Paul began renting space next door at a lecture hall, and Luke writes that they were, quote, conducting daily discussions. It seems that Paul was expounding the scriptures on many days throughout the week. Well, of course, we know the primary reason that the Lord's day is chosen is because Christ arose. As I said earlier, Luke says in Luke 24, 1, he begins to describe the day that the women find the tomb empty on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. The women came to the tomb. But another thing happened on Sunday, though, that might give the church another reason to celebrate their gatherings on Sunday, if a day is actually required to come together and worship God. Luke writes in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The day of Pentecost. What day is that? Well, if we go back to the law, which first prescribed Pentecost, we read in Leviticus 23, from the day after the Sabbath, that's a Sunday, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you are to count off seven full weeks. You shall count off 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath. That's another Sunday. Pentecost falls on a Sunday, and the Holy Spirit fell down on a Sunday on gathered believers, and they prophesied to all the people in Jerusalem. People got saved. 
3,000, the text says in Luke 2.41. I wonder if God is okay with believers getting together on Sundays. But we have this burning question, I'm sure, because the law makes it sound so final. Even Jesus seemed to observe the Sabbath, and I didn't bring up this passage before because I'm waiting for something to wake you up. <laughs> Exodus 31, 12-17, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, Surely you must keep my Sabbaths, for this will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Anyone who profanes it must surely be put to death. Looking for lightning. Okay. Um, whoever does any work on that day must be cut off among his people. For six days work may be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath must surely be put to death. The Israelites must keep the Sabbath, celebrating as a permanent covenant for the generations to come. It is a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Well, gee, that seems kind of final. For the generations to come, permanent covenant, sign between me and the Israelites forever. That sounds, that sounds like it could have ramifications on us now. Well, first of all, since you want to take the Bible very literal, how did Moses begin with that? Tell the Israelites. Are you an Israelite? I'm not an Israelite. Second of all, I think I've, I've, hopefully I've proven that Paul, let alone Peter and the disciples, on Pentecost Sunday are all guilty, if we want to call it that, of having everything that seemed to be makings of a so-called sacred gathering, to use the language of Leviticus 23, verse 3. On other days of the week, I just mentioned that Paul, many days besides Saturday. And, no doubt, they did church on Saturdays too. Lots of the apostles went, likely, to the Sabbath service on Saturdays to try and tell them, guess what, your Messiah's here. <laughs> This comes to our final point, which is actually a point I talked heavily about a few Sundays ago near the end of January, and that is this. Let's cut to the chase rather bluntly. The new covenant of Christ means the old covenant is done away with. To, to first keep it in the same author, in the same book, let's back up to Acts 15 to the Jerusalem Council. What's happening here? When all the Gentiles started coming into the church, and we've been making problems ever since, we... We have some Jews who were saying they need to be circumcised. Why? Well, it's in the law. That's the sign of God's people. But the whole law was implied in this debate. The argument was that Gentiles need to keep the law if they want in on the Jewish Messiah. We see this in questions and statements like Peter in Acts 15, verse 10. Peter says, Now then, why do you test God by placing on the necks of the disciples? Notice Peter gives a all-inclusive term, I think he means all Christ-following people here, a yoke that neither we nor our fathers, speaking of Jewish ancestry here, have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Grace through Jesus? That sounds like what Paul says a lot in his letters. Well, what's the yoke? What's the yoke that Peter is saying that shouldn't be placed on the disciples? Disciples, a term being synonymous with what would became called the Christians, 
Well, look at the final verdict of the council here. It says, in a letter meant for the Gentile Christians, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond these essential requirements. You must abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. That's all. That's the only, I guess, yoke, he would say, that is placed on them. Do you notice anything absent? I notice lots of things absent. Perhaps the most relevant among those things are the entire observation of the law, including the Ten Commandments. So, Kevin, are you saying that we could kill, lie, still, dishonor our parents, envy, sleep around, and it doesn't affect us because you seem to believe that New Testament Christians don't need to keep the law? No to the first part. Put your tomatoes down. We, we shouldn't break those commandments, but yes to the second part. Christians don't need to keep the law. They need to do something a whole lot more sobering. They need to be right before God. Where we're at in Acts, Paul has come to Troas from his last long stay over in Corinth for the winter. And in Corinth, he wrote the book of Romans. He never visited. He didn't plant, but he's going there soon. And he says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed as attested by the law and the prophets. And this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Do you hear that? Apart from the law. The end game for the believer. I believe what God has wanted since the garden is not directly this. I wish people would keep my law. It's this. I wish people would bear my image. Right? That's who I made them to be in the image of God. Reflect me, be righteous, be holy as I am holy. And Paul is saying in Romans, let me use simpler terms. Maybe this might help. There are two boxes with the words God's righteousness written on the side. Open up box one and there's the law. Open up the second box and there's Jesus. Furthermore, Paul says, if you know the contents of box one, the law, you know that within the law, there has always been foreshadows and directions to reveal that box two was coming. Box two, God's righteousness in the form of Jesus can only be received through faith, Paul says, to all who believe. Well, what about the law? That's box one. That righteousness is accessed by perfect submission and following it, but that's proven null and void. Why? Well, Paul continues in a memorable Verse Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point there, box one doesn't work for us. One strike, you're out. You're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of breaking the law, says James. Actually, James 2.10. But back in Romans 3.21, and talking about how box one, the law, attested to box two, if we study our Old Testaments, we knew that a better way was coming. That's kind of what I talked about at the very beginning of the sermon, Bibles about Jesus. I mentioned this back at the end of January, but the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah 31 through 34, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and in the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them out of the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not abide by my covenant and I disregarded them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their minds and inscribe them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. Then the author of Hebrews, commenting on the passage, says, For by speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete in aging will soon disappear. This disappearing first or old covenant entailed the law, entailed strict observation of the Sabbath. With the coming of the new covenant, the coming of box two, Jesus' righteousness found through faith in him, we are under a new guardian. Paul would say in Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Or we are into new wineskins, as Jesus would say, if you drink a little bit. Luke 5, 36 through 39. That means we don't just take some patches, patch up the old wineskins and follow it again. No, we're, we're in box two now. And if the New Testament has come, this means we're following God directly. With the law and what he wants directly written on our hearts. So the moral things, like I mentioned a while ago, lying, killing, stealing, these are all laws written on our hearts. All things that Jesus bids us not to do. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. While the more ceremonial and judicial things were always ever only for Israelites, and I point, as I pointed out in that passage, tell the Israelites to observe this forever. Furthermore, we find that as we go through the New Testament, this is exactly what Paul said in Romans 3, that the, the law and the prophets attested to Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. We know that we can follow uh, Jesus because the law and prophets attest to him. Think this through with me. There is a reason why the 12 disciples plus the harshest, best, most law-abiding, keeping Jew ever, Paul, said this, Jesus, he's a man I can give up the law for. Right? I mean, that's like saying, I can lose my religion for this guy. So much so that even the Sabbath is no longer kept rigorously. It's because whenever someone really opens up the Old Testament, Paul says, whenever that is read with the Lord considered front and center, a veil is lifted. Second Corinthians three fourteen and 16 says, For to this day... The same veil remains as the reading of the Old Covenant. It has not been lifted because only in Christ can it be removed. And even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when any, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Christ fulfills all Scripture. Paul says at the beginning of that letter, For all the promises of God are yes in Christ. So how does Christ deliver on the Sabbath? Here's a myth that I want to dispel. I don't believe that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Let me say that differently. I don't believe the Bible says we should recognize Sunday as our Sabbath. The Bible doesn't say anything about a new Sabbath day. I believe, again, there's good reason to get together and do church on a Sunday. Christ rose from the grave on that day. The Holy Spirit fell in a great church service that saw 3,000 conversions Happened on a Sunday. Let's stick with Sunday. Woohoo. Go Sunday. But the Bible, what the Bible says about Christ fulfilling the Sabbath centers not on the day of the week, but centers on the Sabbath as rest. This is what Bill read for us earlier in Hebrews 4. Christ 
This is what Christ fulfills for us in the Old Testament. Christ fulfills everything in the Old Testament. Ceremonies, foreshadows, types. This is why in Hebrews we have the sacrificial system and in Christ we have the purest sacrifice once and for all. And I've walked through this with you several times. Abraham left his homeland to found a promised land. Christ, we have God leaving his homeland of heaven, founding a promised land for his people. Uh, In Abraham, we have taking up his son to offer him as a sacrifice, just in time for a substitute to be provided. Uh, In Jesus, we have being offered up on a hill to be a substitute sacrifice for us. And the point of Christ as our Sabbath is that in the Sabbath was a gift, a consecrated rest that God promised his people to come to and enjoy every week. So it is in Christ, a consecrated rest where he promises, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Sounds like a song, like what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ is Sabbath rest for us. It's it's not about rules, Kevin. It's not about doing certain things or coming to church. Church services are great. Blocking out time to do it on Sunday makes sense. But as far as Sabbath is concerned, Christ says, He's a place of rest whenever you approach Him. Sabbath is about Christ. My advice Sabbath every morning. Come to Him every morning. Pray to Him. Read His Word. Be at rest in Him every morning. Walk out a day of Sabbath whenever you can here and there. If Sunday, like it is for me, is not a day of rest, take a day of rest to enjoy God's creation. Spend a bit longer than your morning to read His Word and pray. Take hold of Christ's Sabbath rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we uh, open up your word to find believers coming together on a day that certainly shocked the Jews around them. Uh, we know that the the Sabbath was a central tenet of their faith, and perhaps th- for them it was a line of demarcation to say they've completely rejected the faith. Then they're they're not meeting on the right day, uh, but they're meeting with the right person. Father, it was never about a day. It's, it's never about a, a place like the temple. It's all about Jesus. Father, you, you've called us to be righteous with you. And in order to do that, you've invited us to nothing less than yourself through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you are a place of rest. Thank you that we can come to you, spend time with you. All of us can attest to the fact that whenever we come to you and pray and read your word and do spend time with you, we do find that rest Help us to take advantage of that more and more. Help us to desire the Sabbath found in you. And Father, help us to not argue over opinions as Paul has laid out. Uh, Help us to argue about things that matter like who Jesus is, what he does for us. Father, we pray that more and more people would find the rest in Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.